A lot of questions. We're going to address almost all those questions during this message as we discuss the idea of honoring your family dysfunction. It's the reality that uh, the lesson today that we're going to talk about is the fact that if we want to be free, if we want to grow beyond what our generational patterns are, what our parents were, what we hope to be, that we need to be intentional in looking back so that we can move forward. Now, I don't know, you're, you know maybe, I'm, maybe I'm the only weird one in here, and if I am, then that's the case, and you can just say in a little bit that I've got issues, because I do, right? But how many of you, uh, like me, will be driving down the street some days, and you'll just be driving along, thinking about whatever, and all of a sudden, this memory will pop into your mind, decades old, and you'll catch yourself having this argument with your parents, or this argument with a coach, or this argument with somebody from decades ago, that offended you or demeaned you or said something about that? Am I, am I the only weird one here? Is there anybody else that ever does that, has, has those arguments in your head that goes on like that? We've all got ghosts of the past, right? And, and sometimes, you know, I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, the way to find healing and the way to find growth was so centered on the past. And it was, for me, it was centered a little bit in a warped sense. There was so much time witch hunting, blame, and spending time trying to figure out why you were this way, and then these, these kind of magical prayers that were supposed to heal you, and people claiming great healing, but they didn't really change. At least I didn't see it. And, and so, you know, I, I started to get some baggage surrounding this and, and, and start to question, why don't you just, instead of looking back all the time, why don't you just spend time fixing your own attitudes and retraining your own thinking? After all, you, you've been around long enough. There's enough water under the bridge. You should be responsible for yourself. What's all this blame about? And, and some of you probably struggle with this topic today for the same reason. And I understand that. We're going to try to deal with it from a different perspective. I want to encourage you to consider staying open today. Um, you know, and some of you, some of you may struggle with this topic today because you're saying, I, I grew up in a great family. I did. I grew up in a great family. And in my family, there was just this, you know, there was this, this, uh, this code of honor. You know, we just grew up in a great family. There was a code of honor. We never, we never say anything that would dishonor. We never say anything negative about family. And to those of you who struggle with this topic, maybe for that same, very same reason, because you've got a code of honor in your family, let me just say this. Let me, let me address that this way. It's the same as what we talk about when we say there is no grace, there is no mercy without truth. Grace and mercy without truth are simply enablement and avoidance and negative things that we do. The only way you have grace and mercy is to have truth, and the only way you have honor is to deal with reality as well. I mean, think about it from our own perspective. We honor the people usually who, uh, without great resource and much hardship, still, even in a mod of imperfection, manage to accomplish something great, don't we? Aren't those the people we admire and we lift up? Aren't the people we think of uh, as, as being worthy of honor those people who had abusive or alcoholic backgrounds and somehow, even though they were imperfect, managed to raise good kids who all of a sudden became productive? Isn't that the people we honor? You see, honor does not have to deal with uh, covering things or not looking at reality. True honor, in the midst of perfection, still exists in the midst of imperfection. You know, some of us have a hard time looking back as well because we've had a really painful past. 
We've experienced abuse and, and horrors and rejection and abandonment and, and things that, that are indescribable. And, and I, I am so sorry for that pain. I'll tell you straight out, I had a healthy enough family. I probably can't relate to that, although I've been in ministry and done enough counseling to hear plenty of horror stories about rejection and abandonment and abuse and murder and suicide. And and so while I can't understand the pain you're feeling, this is what I do know. I do know that unless we face that and we go back and look at it and reflect deeply on it, we will not find the freedom that we want. God's inviting us to go back so that we can go forward because he wants to expose those controlling painful points, those controlling lies of our life that keep us from doing and living what we want. And and as much as I'd like to deny it, the truth is that our past family greatly, profoundly influences who we are today. Now we're going to illustrate that biblically we're also, I'm going to also illustrate it just with my own personal story in a little bit. But even research establishes that. We've all, we've all heard what I'm about to say. We've all heard about the, the children from Romania or the children from overseas who have been in huge orphanages and they never get touched for the first year or 18 months of their life. And we all know that there's this pattern in that of, of this attachment disorder where they've learned something and they cannot attach emotionally to people. And we also know from study and from research that a lot of attachment disorder drives social and criminal deviancy in teens and adults. And we would all accept that to be true. But what we don't often do is we don't often think about the significance of that. Have you really thought about the significance of that? What's your first memory? How old were you at your first memory? My first memory is somewhere around three years old. That's about as far back as I can go in my mind. There's a possibility that I might have a memory from around two when my cat ran away. I don't really like cats, but my cat ran away, and I somehow, once in a while, I think I, I maybe remember that memory. But think about it. During the first year of your life, before you even become cognizant in terms of a long-term memory, huge social and emotional abilities are instilled in you that are very difficult to shake. Now, you may not have attachment disorder, although that's also common in the U.S. You may not have it that severely, And yet there are huge emotional and social abilities and things that we assume because because think about it. As children, we only know what we know, right? We're just just raised and, and we grow up with the same assumptions that our grandparents had, that our parents had, and we don't know a lot of times that it's even wrong because it's just the way it was. It's just the way it was. And the Bible talks about this, talking about the idea of generational sin in our families. And it talks about this in many different places. And I want to I correct some things that if you've been around that topic before, maybe, maybe you've, like I did for a while, and were taught wrongly about it. Jesus, when we become a follower of Christ, erases a spiritual attachment and a curse over our generational sin. But the reality is just like he forgives us and justifies us and says that we're his children and we're beloved, the reality is we still have to walk out actualizing and going back and looking at those things in order to actualize the freedom that he wants us to have. 
And we also know that the Bible says that each person, in spite of some of the passages that are wrongly interpreted that talk about the sin of parents being visited upon kids, those are usually wrongly interpreted because in the context of Scripture, it says each person is completely judged for their own sin. Not your parents' sin, not somebody else's sin. The Bible clearly retains our personal responsibility for our choice in life. And yet it does talk about the fact of the sins of parents being visited upon the children. And it talks about it, and if, if looked at in context, in the context of Scripture, it means this and nothing more. It just simply means if we sin by abusing, then our kids will likely learn to sin by abusing as well. If we live emotionally detached lives, which isn't as bad necessarily in the overt results as abuse, but if we live as emotionally detached people and we're not there for our family or for our spouse to love them the way they want, then we, by lack of loving them, sin against them by our emotional detachment, we will likely pass that on to our children as well because the children learn the same thing. And this goes against one of the common ideas of sin. Sin is so often thought of as, as this thing that is just in, individual. It's something between me and God. It's something I do. But yet, biblical sin is, is centered in relationship. And it ties to this idea that, that, that we can affect other people and pass on things as well. Therefore, we, we come back to the thesis of this whole series. If we are not deeply reflective on who we are, not just, you know, we've talked a little bit about our emotions and stuff and being aware of our emotions in the present, but if we're not more, even more deeply, deeply reflective on that, of getting behind them to the lies, the the motives or the experiences that create those, the, the things that are similar in the past that make us feel this way today, if we don't actually look back further more deeply into our lives and reflect upon that, not just reflect upon it, but because that's all we ever knew, take that stuff to God and say, what's up with this? Be deeply contemplative with that reflection as well. We will have God trying to give us transformation and give us healing, but we will not be able to receive it because we don't take the time to let him work it out in our lives. If we don't deeply know ourselves, then we will not deeply know and experience the love of God either. Because he wants to touch the deepest places of your life. So how do we do this without avoiding or dis- without, with, with, in a way that avoids the blaming and all the, all the crud that I grew up hating, but still really be practically, practically reflective and process what we look at before God in a really healthy way. We're going to take a look at, uh, just at, at the life of Joseph and his extended family because the interesting thing when we look at Joseph is that the, the book of Genesis is 50 chapters long and, and Joseph and his immediate experience and his immediate family is about 25% of that book. But if we look at his family three generations back, we get to see 75% of the book of Genesis, 50 chapters, give us this picture of his family dynamics. And, and the, the amazing thing in this thing is you think about who his parents were and his granddad and his great-granddad. His dad was, was Jacob, who was later renamed Israel by God. His granddad was Isaac, and his great-granddad was Abraham. And these, these guys are the heroes of the faith, and yet in this family there is significant dysfunction And that's not so much different than our family. Even if you came from a really healthy family that is worthy of honor, could be celebrated as heroes of faith, there's still 
dysfunction that God wants you to pay attention to and he wants you to be free of in your life. And this just illustrates one of the most amazingly beautiful points of the entire Bible. And this is, it's, it's the fact that the Bible is so much the story of God. It's not, so, it's not primarily the story of us. It's primarily the story of God and his patient and loving and kind pursuit and persistence in pursuing us and, and his desire to do good things through our life and good things in our life, even in the midst of our imperfection, even in the midst of our brokenness and sin. He wants to touch us in that way. And secondarily, the story, and look at these guys' lives, is is the fact that even in their brokenness, they still somehow mastered this idea of at each step of the way trying to be completely surrendered, trusting God, and being obedient. Even though they weren't completely whole, they were still dysfunctional. And that's the reason we honor them, is because of their faith and their obedience, even in the hardship and difficulty and imperfection of their experience. We're going to look at Joseph's life in a little bit different way. We're going to look at it in a graphic way. We're going to look at most of the book of Genesis in about the next five minutes. And this is called a genogram. And a genogram is simply a graphic way of illustrating your family and your family tree and the dynamics in it. So if you look right down over here, this little yellow square is Joseph. And we see Joseph down here as the 11th child of Jacob, who was later named Israel. And Jacob, you know, this family is just crazy, crazy, crazy. Jacob has two wives, and, uh, and, uh, and he has two uh, concubines who were basically the maidservants of his wives, who his wives came to him one day and said, I need you to sleep with them so we can have more children. Now, in the cultural context then, that doesn't, that doesn't sound so weird, but in today it sounds weird, but I can guarantee this, a lot of the dysfunction that we would think if this happened today happened in this family. And we see Joseph here as the favored oldest son of the absolutely favored wife. I mean, there was no question who, Joseph, who Jacob's favorite wife was. And Joseph is the favored son. And, 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 and Jacob takes this to such an amazing level of favoritism, which is sin. Favoritism is sin. We're supposed to love each other, period. We're not supposed to have favorites. And, and he's one of the younger ones, and he gets basically this colored robe. And think about it. Here's this teenager and he's now put as, effectively, the manager of these guys who are married, big families, 20s and 30s. They've been working for whatever. And here comes this little punk kid as the manager over these guys. Can you imagine this, this whole thing? I mean, Joseph is set up to be the favorite of his dad and completely rejected by everybody else. And we'll come back to this in just a moment, but let's skip up here. Let's go back a couple generations. So first of all, in Jacob's family, we see lies going on. We see sibling rivalry. We see favoritism going on. Up in, up in Abraham's life, all the way back up here, we see the same thing. Abraham is basically this guy who, he's faithful to God, he's obedient to God, but he's really a weak man. You see, he lies whenever he's a, a fearful man. He lies whenever he's afraid for his wife afraid for his life and in so doing he doesn't love and protect his wife when fear is on the line 
and there's just a difficult aspect of a relationship in there. And, and then he ends up having the same thing that happens down here. Sarah comes and says, why don't you sleep with my maidservant so we can have a child since I'm not having a child. And he has a child, and then there's the whole favoritism thing going on and the rejection and the sibling rivalry. In fact, here's, here's a good lesson of sibling rivalry and the generational impact. Ishmael is claimed by Muhammad and the Arabs even today as their father. Isaac is claimed as the father of the Jews. And if we don't think sibling rivalry and generational sin occurs, this is a pretty good illustration of it. In fact, we drop down here and we see Isaac continue this process of, of lies and sibling rivalry. We see, we see Isaac favoring Esau. We see his wife, Rebekah, favoring Jacob. We see God talking to Isaac saying, Jacob is the one I want you to bless. He's the one I want, I want to put my hand upon for the next generation. And Isaac decides to be obedient, disobedient to God, but somehow, because this family's full of lies and sibling rivalry, through deceit and through alliances, God's will is still managed to be accomplished. Even though Isaac's trying to be disobedient, God accomplishes his will by using the corrupt and weird family dynamics of this, of this culture of making alliances and lying to get his will done in the process. And so we see a continued favoritism, sibling rivalry, lies, unhealthy marriage. We drop down to Jacob, and we already talked a little bit about how Jacob takes that and puts it on steroids a little bit, but Jacob is this liar. In fact, uh, he's just a deceiver. And the amazing thing in, in the story of Jacob in Genesis is that we, not only, we get to not only see his family issues, but we also get to go all the way back up here and go to the other side of the family tree because Jacob is sent to go back to this pl- what's now current-day Iraq to basically find his wife. He's told to go back there to find his wife. And who is he going back to? He's going back to the distant relatives of Abraham to find his wife. And Jacob here goes back there to find one wife and comes back with two. Why? Because this family tree has lies and deceit going all, through, all the way through it. He ends up being lied to, and that's how he ends up with two wives. Can you imagine that wedding night? You know, the story basically must have been, they don't tell the details, it must have been a really a moonless night, it must have been hot, it must have been a lot of wind because no candles were working. He get, basically gets married and, 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 and has his nice honeymoon night and wakes up the next morning and realizes it's not the one he thought it was. It had to be really dark. The Bible has some interesting stories if you haven't read it. I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just, you know, that's just kind of amazing stuff. But we see this coming all the way through. And the interesting part of Jacob's life is God begins to deliver them from generational sin through Jacob's life. We see him in this interaction with God where he's actually renamed Israel, where some of the lies start to be confronted and he starts to receive freedom from God in that, but yet it wasn't early enough because a lot of it's still passed on to his, his kids. We see his kids lying to their dad. We see his kids lying to their dad about, about when they deal with offenses and they go after some people who offended them and they lie about it to their dad. And we see him lying to their dad when they betray Joseph and send him into, into slavery. And so it's still, even though Jacob is, receives a significant amount of healing, it's still impacted most of his family. It's already been passed to in this process. And Joseph's story is this beautiful story of God trying to break these patterns of sin for generations to come. And when Joseph goes to Egypt, 
he ends up having to face two more earthquake pain events for him to actually have that stuff come up in front of him. And the honest truth is sometimes God uses the pain in our life to expose that which we have always assumed. I mean, this guy, he didn't know any different than to lie. He didn't know any different than to make alliances like that. That's what they grew up with. They've never known anything different. And so God uses some earthquake events in his life to to teach him of his faithfulness and to expose the damage that those trends in his family really bring. And it's a beautiful story of God redeeming and breaking significant generational sin pattern in his life and in others. And I think it's most beautifully said in Genesis 50 and illustrated in Genesis 50. It says here, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, so Jacob has died, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So his brothers now have been there years, decades probably in Egypt, and and even though though, uh, Joseph saved them, brought them down, blessed them, set them up with cushy, the cushiest part of the land and, and made sure they were well taken care of. This pattern still isn't gone because we see here. So they sent the word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. And, and the reality is from the context, it appears that Jacob never sent these instructions to him. They're still lying to try to protect themselves. Is, the, is apparent from the context. And they say, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. So they're, they're speaking a lie of what their father said to them. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. For decades, he's thought, maybe this issue is already dealt with. God dealt, dealt with it in me, and, and I've forgiven them. I've blessed them. I've, I've supported them. I've done everything I can for them. But, but no, the, the, the sin pattern still isn't broken. It's still there. The sibling rivalry is still there. The fear is still there. The, the conniving, the, the stuff that drives the lying, the conniving is still there. And then his brothers came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? And this is is really important. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And in God inviting us today to go back so we can go forward, he's saying the same thing to us. He's saying, I want you to look at the past. I want you to look at the, at the sin of your family tree, the sins that you've just passed on. Some of them you don't even know are sins because you've never known anything different. And I want you to look at the unhealthiness of the way your family dealt with stuff to maybe expose the unhealthiness of the way you deal with it. Maybe, maybe some of the unhealthiness isn't even by default absolutely sin. It may lead to sin, but it's not necessarily sin in and of itself. And he wants us to look at that stuff so that we can become more like Jesus, the one in whose image we are created, to be restored to that image of God. And in so doing, he wants to work through you to save many lives, to change generations. And not just change generations, but, but, but to change our community by demonstrating a, a courage and a boldness to be honest, 
with ourselves, to be deeply reflective and to allow God's power to be so resident in us because we take our stuff to Him and we say, God, show me. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to figure out what my family passed on to me because I've never known any different. God, would you show me? And by being courageous enough to do that in a way that honors our family and brings transformation to our lives, your neighbors, your coworkers, He wants to save many lives through you in this process. The reality is that sin is sin. Abandonment is sin. Rejection is sin. Favoritism is sin. Abuse is sin. God doesn't bring those things upon you. But the lesson from Joseph's life for us today is what others intended for harm. Maybe they didn't even intend it. Maybe it wasn't intended for generations ago when somebody sinned and everybody else has just assumed it since then. But what others intended for harm, God can use to accomplish what is currently being done in your life and through each of us to save many lives. In Joseph's life, it took separation from his family. It took, it, it took further moments of pain to expose the full damage of the sins inherent in his family for him to realize them, see them for what they are, and become free. And it's amazing because this whole healing process that we see in Joseph is illustrated even in the names of his children. He names his firstborn Manasseh, which means making me forget You see, Joseph's family had never been able to forget wrongs. They'd never been able to forget rivalry and offenses. And and God is helping him forget the negative of the past. And his second son's name is Ephraim, which means fruitful in my land of suffering. You see, facing the pain, staying engaged in the darkness like we talked about last week, is where God brings transformation, not just for you, but for generations. And it's never too late to start. You know, Joseph's painful experiences forced him to face the family junk and deal with it. And our pain also gives us an opportunity to force the family junk, to face the family junk. But we can by using tools like the genogram or being more intentionally reflective and and contemplative before God, we can deal with so much of this without having as much pain as well if we become intentional in being deeply reflective and deeply contemplative before God, learning to hear his voice and let him speak to us and bring freedom. So how do you do a genogram? Well, in the Living the Quest after the message this week, we'll probably have a couple pages of instructions on different questions you might want to ask and how you would work through this so you can follow up more there. But the first step is just simply putting your family tree on the paper. And you can probably put mine up there if you want. Uh, actually, just leave that stuff up if somebody's taking notes for a minute. That's fine. And so the first step is put, put your family tree down. Then maybe describe each family member with two or three adjectives. If you, if you think of your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your grandpa, what are the two or three adjectives that would most describe them to you? And maybe ask yourself, how did your family deal with emotions in terms of how do they communicate around emotions? How did they behave in the midst of their emotions? What did they do? What was acceptable and what was unacceptable in my family in terms of emotional expression? And maybe even the question, what defines success? And then you look for patterns. And you see the patterns. It's amazing how they stand out. Put, put, up, put up mine. 
Uh, here's my a, a, a beginning, a, a portion of my family genogram, not all of it. And, uh, and, you know, I grew up in a healthy family. I grew up in a family where my parents set me up well because of dealing with some of their stuff to go further than them. They're worthy of honor. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Now, first thing, just in doing this, my legend, you'll notice, is a little bit different. You know, you create your own legend if you're going to do this on your own. What, is, what, what are the symbols you're going to use for disconnect in relationship or pain points? You know, or I've got symbols up there for alcoholism or people who rejected faith because of the hurt. Or I've got different colors up there and different things up there for people who were rejected and people who were favorites and, and workaholism. And this isn't fully done. This is just a work in progress and a portion of it. But, but here's a couple things for me that stand out in my, just very quickly and easily. I mean, you, you look at all the red lines, which mean disconnects in relationship. And, uh, and you see them all the way down here in my immediate family, and you see them on the other side. The one thing that stands out very clear in my family is that, is that the men, when you start reflecting it, were very emotionally detached for generations. They just were people who were detached and they didn't pay attention to, to emotion and they were workaholics all the way through. I, the star means workaholic and if I, I should have had stars over here and over here and over here and on every one of these guys as well. And I mean, it's just, it's just insane. And, and, you know, they never learned how to attach, emotionally connect to people. And so that gets passed down through the generations and the workaholism gets passed down. And, and even though my dad, I've told you before, my dad right here had six heart attacks at age 32 from workaholism and started to preach against it, the power of story is amazing. The stories we tell our family. What are the, what are the legends of your family? Here, here's one of the legends of mine. This is one of the controlling stories of my family. My, my dad, whenever we'd get a scrape or bump an elbow, a lot of times would tell this story growing up and he would he he worked on the farm uh, growing up and in fact before he decided to become a minister he was gonna he was gonna inherit and take over a, a farm from a guy that loved him who didn't have any kids and uh, one day he's working on the farm and he falls out of the hayloft and he falls onto a pitchfork and all the tongs go into his side about a half an inch or more into his side and they just they just pull it out and they walk into the into the farmer's house and and they clean the wounds with alcohol and they bandage him up, and he finished bailing hay. What else would you do? You don't cry. You don't have emotion. You just keep going, right? You just work hard. You're tough. That's the way you are. And that was one of the controlling stories of our family. And, you know, there's, there's other things in there as well that, you know, um, the, the, this starts to show some fragmentation, and, and there's even some healthy parts of that. The, the family on both sides moved away from parents. Nobody stayed close to parents in my family on either side. And it was, it was kind of always taught and expected from a good standpoint. Now, this is the good part of it. We were, we were always taught, well, you obey God and you go wherever you should go, right? If God calls you to Timbuktu, you go to Timbuktu. If God calls you here, you stay. But more than likely, for whatever reason, God's going to call you away. And, and we always, that was a good, healthy thing, right? There's an obedience, trust thing in there that, that was really good to pass down. But, but the reality, the more we reflect on this, is the reality that a lot of people in the family moved away because that was the only way they could get away from the pressure of of the workaholism and the control that went on with that and the emotions that went on with that. And they moved away trying to individuate and gain freedom. But the reality is if I went through and, and went down the family tree from all the aunts and the uncles, the reality is that very few of this generation actually took time to reflect deeply on what was driving them. And you see the same pattern 
all the way down through the generations. We have an opportunity by being deeply reflective to change that in our families, in our life. And one of the things driving me right now in this is, I, you know, I've been facing the idea that six years I'm an empty nester. I've got my first kid getting, to get and go to, getting ready to go to college. And, and I don't know about you, if you've been there before as a parent, you probably relate to this, but when you get to that age, you start thinking about all your kids and you start realizing, oh, geez, I've screwed them up. You know, I've passed on some of this stuff too. I can see what I've passed on and some of the emotional management or other areas that I've passed on. And you start reflecting on this, but, but, and it's a natural stage of life, but why should we wait for the natural stage of life? Why not do it earlier? Why not spend intentional time with God, allowing him to intervene in some of this stuff even more deeply earlier? And the intent of it is not to dig up trash in our parents and grandparents. In most cases, our parents did the best they knew how. And in fact, in most cases, our parents grew in some areas and set us up to grow even further. Not always. The intent is not to dig up trash. The intent is for us to raise awareness of the negative and bring it before God and say, I don't know why I feel this way, God. I don't know why I have this pain. Could you explain what it's about? And could you help bring me freedom? It's, it's the old iceberg illustration. It's the idea that you know, 90% of us is below the water level. And this deeply reflective idea is that, is that we have to, you know, we, we were born into a family and, and we don't know any difference. So we have to go through this intentional process to even reflect upon and bring what is unconscious in us into our conscious awareness in order to find freedom to even change in the first place. You know, you're born into one family. By nature and nurture, you picked up patterns in that family. And you don't even know all those patterns. You're not even aware of them because it's just the glass you look through. It's the way you look at life. And you don't even see that stuff. And, and Jesus is inviting us when we become his children to not allow our bloodline to be the controlling factor, but to allow his blood, his forgiveness, his power in us to become the controlling factor. But it requires that we spend time before him, letting him speak to us about life and letting him teach us what to put off and to put on. Ephesians 4.22 says it this way, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to just take it off put it away. But in order to take it off, we've got to even understand that it needs to be taken off and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Putting off the old, putting on the new family likeness. The family likeness of, of, of the fact that we're created in the image of God himself. Going back in order to go forward, learning to be deeply reflective, honoring our family dysfunction so that we can be free of it. Can I just pray for you? Lord, thank you so much for your presence with us today. Thank you for what you have instilled in us, in our families, the good things. And thank you, Lord, that you are a God who, even though it may have been intended for harm, that you are trustworthy to have worked in that, to bring us to this place, to bring us even more freedom. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be deeply reflective. I pray that you would help us to be intentional, to not just put this off, but to be intentional and allow you to speak to us 
through doing exercises through this, through spending time with you, through asking you what's going on in our emotions, what's going on behind it, where did that come from, so that we can be free to choose your freedom that you're trying to bring to us, that you love to bring to us. And Lord, I pray that as we do that, that you would also help us to see the joy of changing generations, of saving many not just of our own kids, although, Lord, we ask for that. We ask that they would be more free than we are. We ask that they would be more whole than we are. But we ask, Lord, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our community, that through the courage that you would give us to trust you in facing these issues, to not run from the pain, and to not run to something that keeps us not for not thinking about it, but just to bring the stuff to you, to, Lord, Lord, that you would save our neighbors that you would save our coworkers, and that, that what people intended for harm would be for the saving of many. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and would love somebody to pray for you, we would love to do that. Otherwise, uh, sign up for the women's retreat and write down the date of the men's retreat. Get to know some people and have a great week. God bless.